I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, January 30th, 2012. Try it. <laughs> We're going to try to uh, do a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith today. I don't think it could be done. I... What is normal after Code Orange in the Elephant Room? Although, we still got some Elephant Room news today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which... Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, so we teach you how to listen with discernment. The idea is you do what the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17. It says in Acts chapter 17 that when Paul showed up in Berea, that the uh, the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians kind of ran the Apostle Paul out on a rail. Bereans, they didn't do that. They said, all right, okay, so you are the Apostle Paul. You bring us this biblical message about a crucified and risen Messiah. All right, Paul, thank you for your gospel. We're going to take what you've said, and we're going to compare it to the Bible that we have. And at that point in Berea, the only the only biblical texts they had were the Old Testament. And so what did the Bereans do? They tested to see if the gospel that the Apostle Paul was teaching was actually in accord with what God had revealed in his word. And they are held up in Acts chapter 17 as having a noble character. So the idea is this, is that there's a lot of people out there, popular teachers, uh, authors, lecturers, uh, video channel creators, things like that. And you can even put me into the category. I'm a, blo- I'm a blogger and a... And a um, 
and a podcaster. So the idea is, is that everybody, everybody gets tested by the Word of God. Because here's the deal. Nobody in the Christian church, nobody in the visible Christian church actually has the authority or has the um, the license, if you would, to teach anything that's contrary to God's Word. The idea is, is that is that true pastors, true teachers, true apologists, true theologians are to rightly handle God's Word and to teach it correctly and to teach it straight. Now, there's a lot of people out there who, um, well, they twist God's Word and they come up with all these fanciful, weird ideas uh, in an attempt to be relevant, in an attempt to do this or attempt to do that. And in some cases, they may occasionally even preach the biblical gospel. The problem is, is they're adding all kinds of other things onto it. And so the really the, the idea behind this program is for you to sit down, relax. Let's listen together as uh, as we listen to what these people are saying and see if this is what God's word truly is saying here when we look at it in context, when we look at with the understanding that all of scripture actually is to point us to Christ, that the Bible's really about him. When we when we approach it from that, are these teachers telling us the truth and pointing us to Christ, preaching the biblical gospel, bringing sinners like you and like, well, like me, to repentance of our sins and the forgiveness of our sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross? If they're not really pointing us in that direction, uh, in, in some cases, you could even say what they're doing is ripping verses out of context, turning them into fortune cookie sayings, as if somehow what the Bible's really all about is, well, you know, just strip mine it for little life tips and principles that will make your life here on earth better. The reality is this, is when you read God's word in context, what you may experience uh, if you apply what scripture teaches is not success in this life but persecution and suffering. That may be the case. And it's not that you're not applying God's word correctly to your life. That just might be the consequence of uh, of doing the right thing in this world. So just see, that's, I think about it. I mean, it's like the, the underlying assumption of much of the preaching out there that's taking place in the visible church, especially in the churches that seek to strip mine God's word for life tips and principles that you need to apply to make uh, to make things better here is that somehow just merely applying this out of context verse or principle to your life will automatically thus create better success better results better this better that yeah. <laughs> Over and again, I point out the fact that Jesus talks about the fact that uh, because they hated him, if you're truly his disciple, the world will actually hate you. Um, believe me when I tell you, the, the, the world is not threatened by a church that teaches tips and strategies on how to, well, make your financial portfolio yield a better um, uh, return or, you know, how to properly manage your money in such a way that you have less debt and, you know, and uh, more equity. You know, it, the world isn't threatened, uh, you know, by stuff like that. I mean, the world actually offers, you know, all kinds of different avenues for advice when it comes to things like finances, relationship, career advice, and stuff like that. And so uh, the, there's this, this is really bad assumption that in order to make Christianity relevant, what we need to do is, is strip mine the Bible to give people, well, tips on how to better their finances, their career, their marriage life, how to have better behaved children, and things like that. Now, is it true that the Bible teaches things about finances, careers, 
well, you know, career is kind of a stretch, but finances and jobs and children and, and, and you know, relationships. Yeah, it does actually. But it always puts those things into a bigger context. You know, there's sometimes there might be a problem. Not always, but sometimes there might be a problem when somebody is grabbing a verse here and grabbing a verse there and grabbing a verse there, especially when they're not they're not really connected narratively or uh, topically even. And somehow saying that this is a principle: if you do this, then God will do that then we start getting into a problem because God then becomes uh, somebody who does stuff based upon our obedience rather than the obedience of Christ. And um, yeah, that's when you start, you start heading into dangerous waters and begin to undermine and dilute the biblical gospel. Um, Paul really lays into the churches in Galatia when they... Um, come to the misguided conclusion that they are blessed because they obey rather than believe. Yeah, look it up. Acts chapters 2 and 3. Anyway, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Fight. I'm still marveling at the idea that today's <laughs> going to be a standard edition. When was the last time I did like a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith? I mean, we got a Patricia King update. Believe it or not, we got a Patricia King update. I've been dying to do one of these for a while. So we got a Patricia King update. I've got some more Elephant Room news that I want to talk about and cover. Uh, we're going to be doing a, uh, a sermon review from a seeker-driven church in Orlando, Florida. I mean, this is standard Fighting for the Faith fair, and it feels awkward. It feels foreign. I do Can I still do this? I, I... <laughs> I just don't know, but uh, you know. <laughs> so I mean, that, that I mean, we, we just kind of talked about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, and um, I'm going to be a. <laughs> oh man, when we do our our uh, our Elephant Room update, there is a lot, man. Oh man, there is a lot of that. I was kind of hoping that you know, here we are. You know, it's Monday. I mean, we're we're you know, five days from when the uh, Elephant Room two was actually held and that, you know, somehow we'd be having some kind of, well, you know, the dust settling kind of thing. Like, not at all. (laughs) Not at all. It's, uh, I mean, there's Vadi Bauckham news. I got, I got, uh, Bauckham, Bauckham, you know, I I must, I I keep wavering back and forth. Is it Bauckham or Bauckham? Yeah, Yeah, never mind. We'll just call him Pastor Vadi. Yep. <laughs> That's right. Roseboro fell down on that job. <laughs> and it, here's the sad part. Here are my program notes. Uh, let's see here. Point number four. Before going on air, find out how to pronounce Vadi's last name. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't do it. More signs that creeping decrepitude has crept upon me. So, anyway. Oh, man. All right. So anyway, but uh, we so we got Vadi Pastor Vadi news. <laughs> we I th- this uh, it just I I don't even know how to even express what exactly is going on. There a church in the Acts 29 network has uh, publicly announced that they're going to be disassociating with Acts 29 because of uh, Mark Driscoll's mishandling of TD Jakes. This I'm telling you, this elephant room thing has created um f- sorry, um I do not mean to steal this uh, this phrase from uh, Doctor uh, Doctor James White, but the Elephant Room has created a clear dividing line 
Yeah, see, there I go. See, yeah, but that's really the case. I mean, it uh, Pastor uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley over the weekend had uh, it, I, even on my Facebook wall had basically described what's going on as the creation of clear battle lines, and so I completely agree with him. But we're, we'll get into that into a little bit. So, as promised, since this is a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith, let's do this. Ah, yes. <laughs> Those of you new to the program, this indicates we're doing a Patricia King update. Patricia King's website can be found at xpmedia.com. Uh, Patricia King is a gal who, um, well, claims to have direct uh, experiences regarding heaven. And the name of this particular video is en- entitled Eyewitness Accounts of Heaven. Uh, here, let's let Patricia King explain. There is such an acceleration of people having heavenly encounters, access into the glory realm of heaven and seeing things and experiencing things. It was just um, a little while ago I was interviewing Kat Kerr, uh, who's written a book about encountering and experiencing heaven because she has had, had so many experiences into that realm. Really? Okay, so she's she's had experiences where she's gone into the heavenly realm. Wow, I mean, that's impressive. Um, Do you got any evidence for this? And um, it was so cool because she was sharing about all the, you know, things about the memorials that were being built in the mansions and the activities of heaven because she's been... Memorials are being built in heaven and there's mansions being built. So if you're an out-of-work construction uh, worker, just, you know, I'm saying, you might want to check in with the folks over at XP Media it sounds like they're in the process of building a bunch of mansions out there in heaven. And uh, if you're looking for work, you never know. You just never know. I mean, if you happen to get work, work building the mansions in heaven, maybe if nobody's looking, you can grab a couple of you know street pavers. You know, from what I understand, uh, the street pavers in heaven are made of gold. I mean, no one would look. I mean, so not only would you probably get a really good wage, you know, you could probably talk them into, hey, you know, this street paver's looking a little old and weary. You mind if I take it home? Yeah, just saying. In their first hand, and I was just sitting there absorbing it. I was building faith in my heart concerning the realities of heaven. And I wanted to decree over you that there's going to be an increased um, number of of believers visiting and encountering the heavenly dimensions. That. Mm. So, so she's declare, uh, decreeing and declaring it on her own authority, too, of all things. Weird realm has opened up for the body of Christ through Jesus Christ who made access for us 2,000 years ago through his finished work on the cross and now we can encounter and experience those realms you can encounter and experience those realms yeah I totally expect that that's the case I mean just so you know I'm not saying that Christians can't it's just it's kind of uh, well let's just put it this way a rare event if you would I mean even among the prophets it was a rare event however I got you know I got to say this and that is that um, I fully expect that upon my death that I will experience the heavenly realm I mean I might even be able to grab a job helping to build mansions you know I'm just saying but um so yeah um yeah Christ has opened the way for us but um this idea of ecstatic experiences in the heavenly realm. Now, where does the Bible promise that for the mass of believers this side of Christ's return? We got actually, we actually have work to do. Um, and I see things like this as a total distraction away from what we're called to do. Because here's the deal. Have you noticed 
that she hasn't cracked open a Bible yet? Um, She's just declared and decreed this thing based upon somebody else's experience. How do I know that the author of this book that you're you're talking about here wasn't, you know, uh, well, I mean, hadn't spent some time in one of those peyote shacks or something, or maybe was experiencing low blood sugar. And um, what exactly is the gospel that person teaches? And how do we know that they're just not chasing after their own delusions? Um, But what does this have to do with biblical Christianity? You understand what I'm saying? In our glory school, we actually teach step-by-step, line-on-line, precept. Mm-hmm. Here we go. <laughs> Commercial for glory school. By the way, I've heard the entire glory school, and i uh, got to tell you, unimpressed. Biblically, it just falls flat as soon as you put things in context. On precept, how to access those realms by faith and stir it up. So if you haven't taken the glory school yet, get it online, go and order Yeah, because you need to stir things up in the spirit, which means you need a wooden spoon, by the way. And if you're going to stir things up in the spirit, I've heard that, um, you know, that you can use different types of wood. But strangely enough, I've found that pine works best when you're trying to stir things up in the glory, in the, you know, in the glory realm. On our online bookstore at X media.com or come out to a live seminar but also we have something else that will really stir your faith it's a brand new product you can get it on our store at xpmedia.com and it's called powerful encounters of the god realm mm-hmm. powerful encounters of the god realm by the way you know that the bible actually um describes some really powerful encounters of the well the, the, not the god the god, god realm in the bible but i mean you know you think about you know jacob you know, witnessing a ladder between heaven and earth and angels ascending and descending. Then you think about those apostles. Talk about encounters with the God realm. I mean, there was the God man himself with them for three years. Talk about powerful encounters. I mean, just about every minute for for those three years that those disciples were with Jesus, they they had some pretty powerful encounters. I mean, so much so that they were eyewitnesses of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. In fact, it's weird because when you look at the apostolic record, those guys were obsessing about telling those stories about Jesus. And you don't really get a lot of details about any, um, well, ecstatic experiences. I mean, they're in there, but um, nowhere promised to every believer. What I did is I wanted to prepare a resource for the body that could build them up in faith, that they could read it like a devotion, not just... um having to sit down and read through an entire book, but you could pick it up anywhere and just catch whatever chapter you wanted, and it would feed you. So I invited a whole bunch of friends of mine who have had one-on-one. So Christians need to be fed on a book that Patricia King made rather than the Bible. Hmm, that's odd. Encounters in the glory realm, God encounters, angelic encounters. And I said, would you write one chapter in the book of your most powerful encounter with God? And so I collected all of those, put them in one book for you, and it's called Powerful Encounters of the God Realm. It's a great book, and it's a great book to give out for gifts, and especially to people that... (laughs) Yeah, only if you want the person you're giving it to to, well... end up in hell but might not be that aware of the um, supernatural realm and that it's available for them to access anyway yeah the supernatural it's available for you to access right now for just a simple price of this book those are some tools for you that I think that that you'll really enjoy but I want to prophesy over you oh no really here we go and again with a one-size-fits-all prophecy for everybody who views the video that you are going to enter into realms of the heavenly dimension. Really? Uh huh. No, she hasn't opened a Bible yet. Where you will have your own personal experiences because God is doing it. Uh huh. Just because God's doing it. You, you, she's heard rumors, you know. 
heard stories. So many people you talk to, even young children, the elderly, everyone in between, they're having visitations into the heavenly realm. It- yeah, by the way, if you're visited by an angel, um, strongly recommend that before you allow that angel to talk with you, spend some time catechizing it. What I mean by that is walking through the biblical uh, gospel, maybe a creed or you know something that has to do with the basics of the Christian faith to check the um, the credentials of the angel. It's not to be impertinent or anything like that. It's it's this idea that Jesus himself warns us that the devil masquerades as an angel of light. So, yeah, and so the idea is this. I mean, y- y'all ever seen any of those, uh, you know, made-for-television World War II dramas? You know, I, I you know I, I, I happen to enjoy that particular genre, but I, I like the ones regarding D-Day. But uh, they were put out by Spielberg a few years ago. Band of Brothers, fantastic story, by the way. And uh, you, you remember when they were when the, the Allied troops were parachuted into France, right? And well, they were all over the place. So, you know, the, apparently the uh, the the parachute drops weren't all that successful as far as getting people on target. But um, what was interesting is is that the uh, Allied forces had a clicker, and you know that they would click, or and they had a, a they had a a, a set of passwords that they would pass, you know, that they would use for each other to verify that they were on the same army because, you know, and, and so, you know, I think, what, what was a code word? Flash? Anyway. Uh, but so they, you know, you, you got these guys in Normandy, you know, and they're off off of their targets and they're trying to figure out how to rally to get to their, you know, to their targets, to, you know, to accomplish their different missions for D-Day. And when when soldiers would come up to each other, I mean, it's dark, it's night. I mean, and, you know, how do you know if the guy is actually German or whether he's, you know, uh, part of the Allied forces. Well, they had a, a, a way of working that out. Same thing. Um, just because an angel appears to you, an angel of light appears to you, doesn't automatically mean that he's on the side of God and God's angels. It may be, uh, well, uh, an agent of the devil. I, I think of Joseph Smith from the Book of Mormon, uh, from Mormonism. I mean, he claims to have received a visitation from the angel Moroni, and well, that resulted in Mormonism, a, a non-Christian cult that's you know kind of like American Islam, for lack of a better way of putting it. So, yeah, when, so when an angel shows up, yeah, you got to spend a little bit of time kind of working out to see, okay. What's the biblical gospel, you know, and, you know, it, you know, spend some time with it to just verify, verify that it's, 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 you know, playing for the right team, not the wrong team. Just, you know, just saying. So, um, yeah, so here she's, you know, prophesying over this, this uniprophecy. We're all going to have, you know, angelic encounters and stuff like that. Well, I don't need that. I've got the Bible, which, by the way, God's word is living and active, powerful, you know, more powerful than any double-edged sword. Uh, you know, so. It is an open heaven that we live live under, and we're going to have more and more visitation. So, in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, just on her. I I release over you mm. the blessing of God yeah. to experience God. Yeah, too bad I don't have any of the authority to do that in this next um, season of your life. Yeah, next season. <laughs> As I get older, I've gone from summer into fall. Believe me, it's all kinds of fun. Can't wait for the winter season to come in my life. It's going to be good. Yeah. Get some teaching. Get some good teaching. Get grounded in this. Yeah, and avoid xpmedia.com if you're looking for good teaching. Scripture. See what the Lord has to offer you in the Word of God.
the word that is true, the word that will not fail, because he shows you right in here how you can access heaven. Maybe get the glory school, come out to a glory school. Yeah, how did the church survive for 2,000 years without the glory school, you know? Uh, get yourself filled with the testimonies because filled with testimonies uh -huh. when you hear a testimony of what God has done in someone else's life it actually builds faith and enable God oh wow so somebody else's life testimony it, well it'll build your faith even better than God's word or it's on par with God's word hmm yeah I got a problem with that to do it again in yours and so God bless you and you know what we love you so much we are we are so excited about being in partnership with the people who are yeah done <laughs> sorry patricia it's been a few weeks since i've had to endure one of those <laughs> who we anyway so there you go apparently you know testimonies of the heavenly encounters will feed your faith just as much as god's word will no it won't it distracts you away from jesus christ and focuses you on the wrong thing. It's like trying to use God and his word for this these ecstatic experiences. But, well, that's not what the Bible's about. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time 
end-time judgments about to be unleashed on planet Earth. Don't miss out on getting both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand-new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural. For a donation of $25, shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Call or write today. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So you might want to trust your Bible and not seek after angelic heavenly encounters. Just saying. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so. So by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. It's time for our Elephant in the Room update. Here they come. They're here. They're there. Everywhere. Look out. Look out. They're walking around the bend on the head, clippity-cloppity, arrayed in great pink elephants on parade. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. I can stand the sight of worms and look at microscopic germs, but technicolor pachyderms is really too much for me. I am not the type to faint when things are odd or things are quaint, but seeing things you know that ain't can certainly give you a lawful fright. What a sight! Chase them away! Chase them away! I'm afraid! Need your aid! Big elephants on parade! Pink elephants! Pink elephants! Pink elephants! Alright, there we go. That's our uh, elephant in the room update music. Okay, so uh, we're going to start off our Elephant in the Room uh, coverage today by going to the Christian Post first. 
And uh, a story that broke literally just as we were getting ready to go on the air on uh, on Friday, I did not get a chance to uh, really take a crack at it. And uh, so I want to share it with you because I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this. Uh, now, in politics, they talk about the race card. You know, you play the race card. You know, if you say if you're a white uh overweight, middle-aged male, and you say anything negative against Barack Obama's policies, well, there's only one reason why you would ever say anything negative about Barack Obama's policies. It's, well, because you're a racist. Now, we expect that in in politics. We get that in politics. It's a standard card played by people in politics. By the way, uh, that's what we call an ad hominem. It has absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, I mean, seriously, I, just because uh, Barack Obama is an African-American doesn't mean that no white person gets to critique his uh, policies. I, it's just, and so if you point, you, oh, your only reason why you're doing that is because ra- it's a race. That's an ad hominem attack to basically change the subject and not deal with the substantive critique, but to deal, you know, to basically make, you know, cast a shadow of doubt on the um, the motives of the person bringing the um the critique. Well, as it turns out, um, yeah, uh, let me read this. The headline reads, Reform crowd asked to repent for attacking T.D. Jakes. This is by Aaron Son of the Christian Post. Lead pastor and author Brian Crawford Loritz is asking the Reform community to repent of their harsh criticism and one-sided attacks on Bishop T.D. Jakes in regards to his beliefs about the Godhead. Hmm. Repent of harsh one-sided attacks. Okay, let me continue reading. Having personally attended this year's Elephant Room featuring speakers like Jake's, Mark Driscoll, Stephen Furtick, and his father, Crawford Loritz. So this is uh, the person making the the attack is Brian Crawford Loritz, the son of Crawford Loritz. He was at the event, and now he's basically telling people, you need to repent. Um, anyway, he says, uh, Loritz found the assaults directed toward the Potter's House senior pastor unwarranted and unbiblical. Really, all by himself. Okay. Quote, if you have attacked Bishop Jakes or James McDonald over Bishop's, over Bishop's perceived modalism and after hearing what he has to say and how he is not a modalist, then you need to repent and it needs to be as public as the attacks that you've made. The Fellowship Memphis leader penned on his blog on Thursday. Quote, anything less than this is unbiblical, and I'm anxious to see how truly gospel-centered you are, he added. Controversy surrounded the Elephant Room, a theological roundtable featuring blunt conversations among influential pastors prior to Wednesday's event. Pastor James McDonald, also the moderator of the discussion, along with Driscoll, had drawn critics for inviting Jakes to the Elephant Room. McDonald was hoping to hear Dallas, uh, the Dallas pastor's view on the Trinity and the prosperity gospel. I need to point out the prosperity gospel seems to have, well been conveniently overlooked. Anyway, many Reformed Christians accuse Jakes of being a heretic due to his purported belief in modalism. Yeah, that's... (laughs) By the way, that's only part of the problem there. Um, Yeah, by the way, I I want to point this out. Joel Osteen, he's a Trinitarian and a heretic. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, maybe I... I, You know what I need to do? Put a couple of stingers together, you know. uh, Hi, I'm Joel Osteen. And I'm a Trinitarian, and I'm a heretic. <laughs> Hi, I'm Stephen Furtick, 
and I'm a Trinitarian, and I'm a and I'm a heretic. You know, you know, kind of like you know, those uh, like those commercials about the Mormon church. Anyway, yeah, uh, <laughs> just yeah, because here's the deal: just because, well, um, let's, I mean, putting the best construction on it. Let's just say that Bishop T.D. Jakes is a confused Trinitarian who just prefers modalistic language, um, <laughs> which is an equivocation. Anyway, uh, let's, just, let's just say that really down in his heart of hearts, he's truly a Trinitarian, except for just a really confused Trinitarian who prefers modalistic language. Um, and he really believes in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as three distinct eternal persons that, that, may, that are the one God. Uh, then, <laughs> okay, that's only like, part of the problem the other problem is well all of his prosperity preaching and you know what i'm going to do here i'm going <clears> to <throat> give me a second i'm going to um play audio from a video put up by uh, the folks over at uh, wretched tv this would be todd friel's outfit and this came out on friday and got to tell you it's brilliant because here's the deal the the prosperity heresy was never addressed at the elephant room we got T.D. Jakes basically being able to pass himself off as a Trinitarian who prefers to not use the word person, but the word manifestation. By the way, those two words are not synonymous. I mean, if you're familiar at all with church history and the, and the theological battles pertaining to modalism, then you will know that the, the term manifestation was, a, was like where the action was at. And, <laughs> They're not synonyms. Look it up. I mean, seriously, go to dictionary.com, type in person, and then type in the word manifestation and see if they're synonyms. I mean, if you were to look in a thesaurus, you would discover that the word person and, and manifestation ain't synonyms. That's not as bad English, but you get what I'm saying. But here, let, let me, I'm, I'm digressing here. I'm going to come back to this uh, story about the, you know, reformed guys need to repent. Um, here is audio of James McDonald, Mark Driscoll, and T.D. Jakes. And the subject is the real elephant in the room, and that would be the prosperity heresy, which was never brought up. Um, yeah, here, you'll get what I'm saying. Pastors in these massive, massive homes and, and preaching a prosperity gospel where Jesus wants you wealthy. It's sickening. The blessing is yours. The business is your that is a distortion of the gospel that was unheard of through the entire history of the church your blessing is within your reach god said everything you can reach you can have prosperity theology teaches that the more holy you are the more wealth you'll accrue there is no reason for you to hemorrhage financially particularly if you're a tither this has not been exported to the second and third world it's false teaching if you think you're going down you're going to go where you're thinking. Prosperity theology is a theology of not loving God, but using God to get your real God, which is wealth. And if you will sow what you got left, God said, I'll give you back whatever it was. It's sickening. God says, I'm interested in bringing you to a place that you stop losing everything I'm giving you. Prosperity theology is wrong. The major rock and rolls, and there are three Okay, I got to point something out. In case you couldn't really catch the audio there, um, that was T.D. Jakes 
taking <laughs> taking a biblical passage i've seen bits and pieces of this particular sermon uh, taking bits and pieces of the story of the visit of the magi three camels full of gold and he's allegorizing that to somehow mean that god's going to bring three camels full of gold to you i am not joking that's what went down in that sermon your situation may look like a barn you may not have nothing to lay on but hey you may be wrapped in swaddling clothes notice again it's a christmas passage he's taking the luke story he's taking the luke story and the and the story of the magi you may be laying on swaddling clothes you may be living on hay in a manger but I came here to tell you the camels are coming. The camels are coming. Yeah, no joke. And, and now we got McDonald again, you know, teaching against the prosperity heresy. It's a distortion of the gospel that was unheard of. You can have it. Reach out and grab it. That is a distortion of the gospel. It's a Ponzi scheme where we use God to get money, which means our ultimate goal is to worship money. The camels are coming. not about religious performance so that we could get wealth and he would bless us we could get comfort and our life would be easy if you show money you won't read money that we would get power and we would be able to control our own destinies god said if you want more you can have more but in the last 50 years it is front and center stage in the western world if you reach god will open up the windows of heaven only here where we have no tolerance for truth and embrace the messages that bless our hearts, preach the word, in season and out of season. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate teachers for themselves and will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to myths. We're in that time, people. Yeah, no doubt we're in that time. The problem is, is that... Uh that was one of the elephants in the room. It was right there, and there wasn't even a word brought up about it. Anyway, I digress. I ended up, uh, you know, bunny trailing myself here as I was uh, <clears throat> reading from this story, where apparently uh, reform guys are need to, they need to repent. Now, the good news is, being a Lutheran, <laughs> apparently I don't have to repent. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's how it works. Anyway. <laughs> All right, so let's see here. Um, okay, so where was I? Many Reformed Christians accused Jakes of being a heretic due to his purported belief in modalism. Yeah, that was all part of it. Um, anyway, for that reason, conservative evangelicals and leaders of the Gospel Coalition, uh, Coalition allegedly began pressuring McDonald to pull the plug on Bishop Jake's appearance at the Elephant Room Conference, which eventually led McDonald to resign as a Gospel Coalition council member. Despite the tensions, McDonald stuck with his decision and kept Jake's in line as a speaker during round two of the Elephant Room, the Jake's uh, the Jake's finally broke down his view of the Trinity and also addressed him being labeled a heretic. Jake's himself admitted that he once clung to a modalist position due to his background. He was converted and raised at a oneness church. Now, by the way, that's that's the issue: converted and raised as at a oneness church. If they don't believe in the biblical Jesus, how can you be converted to the biblical Jesus in a oneness church? Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, see, that's right there. There's a big problem. Anyway, but he believes different uh, differently now, embracing the conservative evangelical doctrine of the Trinity, one God and three persons, though he said he's not crazy about the word persons. And it's not that he's not just crazy about it. He prefers the word manifestations. 
So when asked a series of questions by Driscoll clarifying his doctrine, Jakes affirmed that there was very little difference between what he believed and what the Mars Hill pastor believed. He Very little difference, but there's a difference. See, he acknowledges there's a difference. He also acknowledged that though he was considered a heretic in many communities, it did not bother him as he was more focused on the body of Christ working as one and t- one unit in love despite disagreements. Amid the discussions, Loritz found ba- uh, Bishop Jakes to be an incredibly humble man willing to be questioned and open up for ridicule. He didn't have to be there, nor did he have to ha- answer a single question, but he did. I think that many of our brothers can learn from his humility. Loritz said on his blog, though he understood that some would respond to Jakes's answer with skepticism. Yet, well, here's the deal. The reason why the skepticism is because when you take a look at the details of what he said, yeah, I believe in one God, three persons, but I'm not comfortable with the word persons. I prefer the word manifestation. So strike the word persons. And what do you get? I believe in one God and three manifestations. Yeah, that's, I mean, what is that? Yeah, it's, <clears throat> anyway. So he says, though I understand that some will respond to Jake's answer with skepticism, saying that his confession would not have been authentic. Loritz hoped and believed, uh, hoped that believers would read the great love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, which states that love believes and hopes all things. So there you go. Despite the fact that he continues to waffle regarding um, a clear public profession of the doctrine of the Trinity without any caveats or footnotes or redefining of words, um, we should just, well, because 1 Corinthians 13 says that we, we, should, we should love, and that means we need to hope all things. We need to just hope that, and, and love that uh, T.D. Jakes, you know, as our Christian brother. So he, uh, Loritz continues, this is, by the way, the son of Crawford Loritz. My anger is at those who have attacked Bishop Jakes and James McDonald without even coming to the event <laughs> or considering giving Bishop a fair, fair hearing. <laughs> <clears throat> hey, um, yeah, um, I hate to break it to you, but I tried. You know, I <laughs> I tried to show up to give the bishop a fair hearing, but I was met with sec- a security guard and one of the um, uh, elders there at Harvest Bible t- Chapel and told that I wasn't allowed to come and hear Bishop Jakes or give him a fair hearing. I was threatened with arrest for trespassing. So. <laughs> you know, it's <clears throat> hard to give somebody a, ha- a fair hearing when you're told you can't be there. Anyway, uh, some of these gospel-centered people strike me as extremely arrogant. And while they preach a good gospel, they, in this incident, don't seem to be living the gospel. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So to the adjunct professor at Crichton College, those gospel-centered people elevate love for doctrine over love for people. His words for them were, your conduct is out of step with the gospel, referring to the Apostle Paul's words to Peter in Galatians 2, when he avoided the Gentiles only when he was around the Jews. Well, I tried to be a, you know, I tried to be at the elephant room, but, you know... <laughs> I wasn't allowed. So are you going to say that they their their uh, behavior was out of step with the uh, gospel? Anyway, though he was not acute. Uh, so Loritz also advised that the, the middle-aged white reformed guys. There it is. There's the race card. Loritz also advised the middle-aged white reformed ca- ca- uh, guys to be extremely careful of the messages they sent, both implicit and explicit, though he was not accusing anyone of racism. Mm-hmm. Well, then why say that? Why even mention, I mean, the the fact that they're white guys, right? He found that the reform crowd's actions, referring to some to the elephant 
event or having an honest dialogue said an implicit message to the public of theological bigotry. So there's a brand new category out there, theological bigotry. And it's po- and it, there's some race involved in this new ca- category of theological bigotry. Huh. Wow. Interesting here. Um, so was it bigoted of them to not allow me to... Uh, on the property to watch the, the the event. Anyway, this led me to believe uh, that you know what that what we what we've missed there at the uh, elephant room uh, is that this was in fact well an ecumenical council. Now, if you're familiar with your church history, I mean, there's some famous church councils that uh, are you know that uh, any good student of of church history must understand. I Council of Nicaea, Council of Orange, the Council of Carthage. Uh, in uh, 308 uh, A.D. Uh, regarding the Pelagian heresy, must read stuff. I mean, so I mean, there's there's some there's some really good church councils that I strongly recommend people uh, pay attention to. But uh, so apparently, who knew that you know the Elephant Room was in fact an ecumenical church council? Well, this caused me over the weekend to spend a little bit of time writing. Uh, in fact, writing a blog post which you can see at the Letter of Mark entitled "The Canons of the Elephant Room Too." Yeah, here, let me read. With Brian Crawford Loritz's public demand for white middle-aged reform guys to repent of their attacks against T.D. Jakes, it's becoming increasingly clear that James McDonald and other members of this week's Elephant Room 2 conference, ER2, are acting as if it were an ecumenical council and uh, that the decisions that they arrived at are actually binding upon all of evangelicalism. Fact is, those who are being called to repent were not represented in the elephant room, nor were they permitted to ask theologically substantive questions. And in my case, I was threatened with arrest for trespassing when I showed up to watch the event. As if that's not enough, we've now learned that Vadi Bauckham's uh, scheduled appearance to teach at this week's Harvest Bible Chapel Men's Conference will not happen because of his differences with James McDonald regarding the Elephant Room too, namely the decision of ER2 to declare T.D. Jakes a brother in Christ and a Trinitarian. By the way, I'm going to be covering Vadi Bauckham's, Pastor Vadi's um, <clears throat> response to this here in a minute. So these actions on the part of ER2 members makes it clear that their expectation is for all evangelicals to unquestioningly honor and abide by their decisions. Furthermore, it is clear by their actions that refusal to abide by their decisions will result in punitive actions, including, but not limited to, one, being branded as unloving. Two, being accused of behavior that is contrary to the gospel. And three, being excluded from publicly teaching in evangelical churches. We'll get to Vadi's thing here in a minute. So that being the case, as a careful student of church history, I would like to point out that previous church councils would publish their decisions, pronounce anathemas, and in the case of the Council of Nicaea, publish a creed in order for the church at large to properly understand what each of these councils decided and why. Therefore... What is missing from the Elephant Room 2 is a succinct summary of the decisions arrived at by this ecumenical, that's in quotes, ecumenical church council. Below, please find my suggestions for this document. <clears throat> so this is my my suggestion. So this would be like Canons of the Elephant Room 2, you know, draft number one kind of thing. So Canons of the Elephant Room 2, Aurora, Illinois, United States, January 2012. <clears throat> Canon number one. 
If anyone denies that T.D. Jakes is a Trinitarian despite his preference for expressing his belief in the Trinity using the historic language of Sabellian modalism, they are anathema. <clears throat> Canon number two. If any middle-aged white reform guys continue to attack Bishop T.D. Jakes and insist that his confession of the Trinity wasn't theologically clear, they are acting contrary to the gospel and guilty of loving doctrine more than people and are anathema. Uh, canon number three, the Nicene Creed and Athanasian Creed, although useful and instructive to Christians in centuries past, have been deemed to be too theologically rigorous and exacting for our postmodern age. So any person who insists that the Trinity must be, be defined by these two creeds, well, they're anathema. Uh, canon number four, <clears throat> this is the important one. Any person who confesses that there is one God who exists in three persons and or manifestations, depending on which word they prefer, is Trinitarian enough for us, and their orthodoxy cannot be questioned without acting contrary to the gospel. Canon number five. The prosperity gospel is not a false gospel, and since we didn't deem it important enough to address in the elephant room too, no one should worry about it. Those who claim the prosperity gospel is a false gospel are haters who are unnecessarily causing division in the body of Christ, and they are anathema. Uh, canon number six, any person who denies that the Elephant Room 2 panel members have the authority to make these decisions on behalf of the entire body of Christ or that the decisions reached by the Elephant Room 2 are not binding upon the consciences of all the evangelicals well, is anathema. Canon number seven, all pastors who refuse to abide by the canons of the Elephant Room 2 are hereby stripped of their ordinations and are to immediately leave their church properties or they will be arrested for trespassing. <laughs> so, yeah, those are the uh, seven canons that I've uh, put together for the canons of the Elephant Room 2, and I really think that's how this is playing out. Now, to give you an example of what I mean, we got to talk about Vadi Bauckham. Um, that's what I, I'll just call him Bauckham. Man, I, I, Pastor Vadi, right after the Elephant Room uh, 2 debacle, um, Vadi Bauckham made a, a basically a very, very, very succinct critique on his Facebook wall about what happened at ER2. And by the way, Pastor Vadi is African American, so um, he does not qualify as a white reformed male. No, he's an African American reformed male. Um, and uh, on his Facebook wall, right after uh, the event, um, he actually just came right out. And, he, and I think, I, you know, anyway, let me read this. Um, uh, Pastor Vadi writes, he says, um, Kevin King Jakes, as T.D. Jakes, is a modalist. He does not hold to the historic doctrine of the Trinity. He dodged the questions and was allowed to use modalist language in doing so. He was never going to be confronted. He was an honored guest. He was not going to be penned down. To do so would have required, one, a deaf theological mind doing the questioning, a clear statement for him to accept or deny. That's two. Three, a setting where it was not already assumed that he was one of many Christian brothers discussing their differences, thus having a conversation with him. It's not the problem, but the context is. Scripture's clear on this. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house. Give him a greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And beyond that, he could have answered those questions perfectly, and there still would have been a problem. Jakes does not hold to the biblical gospel. He is a false teacher. So 
Pastor Vadi very publicly on his Facebook wall made it clear where he stood. Well, what ended up happening is that Pastor Vadi um, was supposed to be speaking over the weekend at Harvest Bible Chapel's Men's Conference. And, uh, well, he wasn't allowed to speak. Yeah, in fact, let me read to you Pastor Vadi's account of what happened from today's blog post, The Elephant in the Room, and you can find this at gracefamilybaptist.net, and just click on the blog link, and you can find this from January 30th, 2012, Vadi Bakum writes, he says, This past week, a firestorm erupted over the recent Elephant Room, too. The controversy centers around the decision to invite Bishop T.D. Jakes to participate in the event. The central questions in the debate are, one, whether or not Jakes holds to the historic Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, two, whether it was appropriate to invite and feature him without first having clarified his position on this cardinal doctrine, and three, whether he cleared up the matter. I, this is Pastor Vadi, was scheduled to speak at Harvest Bible Chapel on the weekend following ER2, which raised significant questions about my stance on the matter. While I do not consider it my responsibility to comment on every controversy, I do recognize my duty to clarify matters with which I am involved directly and or those that impact the congregation I'm called to shepherd. Hence, my explanation now. In other words, (laughs) Pastor Vadi had a skin in the game here. <clears throat> my ER2 in uh, my invitation to ER2, Pastor Vadi right <clears throat> Pastor Vadi writes, in October of 2011, I was invited to participate in the Elephant Room 2. The invitation followed Mark Deaver's decision to pull out. James McDonald called me and asked me to take his place. He also informed me of the controversy at the time surrounding the invitation to Jake's and Deaver's decision to pull out and that Crawford Loritz had agreed to fill in. I knew James McDonald only indirectly and had only recently heard of the elephant room. Initially, it sounded like a very good idea to pin Jake's down on the Trinity. My area of emphasis in my theological training is evangelism and apologetics. Moreover, I addressed Jakes' modalism in my first book in 2004, so I'm well aware of the issues in question, and I believed it could make a contribution. Also, to my delight, James indicated that Jakes had abandoned oneness Pentecostalism, rejected modalism, and he believed Jakes would make that clear in ER2. I called my fellow elders to make them aware of the invitation. We usually meet monthly to review and consider invitations, but this was an urgent matter, and McDonald had asked for a decision by the next day. We agreed that I should, one, find out more about the Elephant Room. Specifically, was this an apologetics forum or a forum that would assume Jake's orthodoxy? And two, find out why Dever, or Dever had backed out. After investigating the matter, I decided to decline the invitation. My decision was based on four major areas of concern. Note, I voiced these four concerns to McDonald during our phone conversation the next day. Concern number one, T.D. Jakes has a history of holding to, teaching, and associating with modalism, and ER2 was a forum wherein he would be assumed to be a brother. I was already on record concerning Bishop Jake's modalism, see the ever-loving truth, Lifeway 2004, and have kept up with the matter. Jake's had never repudiated oneness Pentecostalism, nor had he come out with, uh, uh, nor had he come out with an unambiguous creedal confessional statement on the doctrine of the Trinity. There was absolutely no basis for me to assume that Jake's was suddenly orthodox, and therefore no basis for me to welcome him as a brother. Concern number two. 
The word of faith gospel he preaches is heterodox and harmful. Even if Jakes had come out with a statement on the doctrine of the Trinity, it would not have done anything to change the fact that he preaches another gospel. See Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. Having studied the word of faith movement and seen the devastation it leaves in its wake, I was disinclined to stand shoulder to shoulder with the man who has been this country's most popular purveyor of this heresy in the past two decades. Note, James MacDonald and Mark Driscoll had both preached against Word of Faith movement and called it a heresy, so I did not believe I was informing James of anything he did not already know. Concern number three. Jakes's influence in the Dallas Metroplex has been negative at best. My wife is from Dallas, and my in-laws still live there, her parents and five siblings. I have preached in Dallas on many occasions and had numerous churches and have many acquaintances in the city. I know firsthand what kind of influence T.D. Jakes has on that on the evangelical community, the broader Christian witness there. Suffice it to say that he has not brought greater gospel clarity and fidelity. He has, however, brought a charismatic, theatrically excessive word of faith flavor in the city that permeates many churches, especially the black churches. Concern number four, Bishop Jakes is an example of the worst the black church has to offer. One of the goals of ER2 was to address the issue of racial unity. Thus, Bishop Jakes was there, at least in part, as a representative of the black church. In light of the aforementioned issue, I was disinclined to participate in such an event. You see, Jakes was an invited guest, an invited black guest. If he were mistreated or he had the race card, it would have... If he were mistreated, he had the race card. If he was accepted, he had the entree into a new audience. It was a win-win for T.D. Jakes and a lose-lose for evangelicalism. Obviously, he was not going to spout unadulterated modalism, nor was he going to repudiate his roots. Remember, this is his heritage, both ethnically and theologically. He had a perfect opportunity to find a middle ground and show humility in an environment that would be portrayed as hostile, even though hostility was forbidden in light of the unwritten rules surrounding his blackness. Thus, his opponents had to choose between outright defeat and uh, pyrrhic victory. Moreover, I rejected the invitation because I didn't want to give even the appearance of tokenism. The participants in the elephant room, though they disagree methodologically on how we get there, are all virtually identical in their general po profile. They are all successful megachurch pastors who have leveraged innovative and or controversial methodologies to grow their churches, media empires, and or parachurch ministries. I, on the other hand, am a pastor serving a church with less than 500 members. I'm not on television or radio, and my books aren't bestsellers. I don't fit the profile, and whether McDonald meant it or not, he was painting a picture of tokenism. If he meant it, I didn't want to be used. If he didn't mean it, I didn't want to be the source of misunderstanding. While Pastor McDonald said that he respected my decision, he made it clear that he did not agree with me. We agreed to disagree, and he 
moved on. At this time, I made two important decisions. First, I decided not to get involved in the public furor over ER2. I had spoken my piece to James and saw no advantage in getting involved any further. There were others who were making many of the same points, and I didn't want to pile on. James White, Phil Johnson, Thibidiana Buile, Anthony Carter, and others were pressing the issue, bringing the pertinent points to light. <clears throat> I did not regret this decision. My second decision, however, is another story altogether. My second decision was to move forward with the scheduled men's conference. That was unwise. Wow. Wow. That's amazing that he's saying this. I was naive to think that there would be no fallout if I decided to go forward with the men's conference. The men's conference was scheduled to take place two days after the elephant room. My worst fears were realized. At ER2, i.e. Jake's equivocated on modalism and was not even challenged on the word of faith gospel, there was no way for me to, one, keep silent on this growing controversy, and two, attend the men's conference without giving tacit approval to ER2. The decision to go public was inevitable. The only question was how. I have a regular practice of posting notices of upcoming events in my monthly newsletter and on my Facebook fan page. These have been invaluable tools that keep people apprised of when I'm coming to their area or the area of friends and family whom they'd like to invite to one of our events, how they can pray for me, and what kind of doors the Lord is opening for the ministry. As per my practice, I posted a link to the men's conference and asked any fan page members planning to attend. As you can imagine, there were more than a few questions about my position on the elephant room, too. My relationship with James McDonald and Harvest Bible Chapel and a whole host of other things were brought up. I answered those questions as honestly as I could. I made it clear I opposed the decision to invite Bishop Jakes, pointed out what I saw as his masterful dodge on the Trinitarian question and subsequent affirmation of modalist language, and gave a brief explanation of my reasoning for keeping this prior commitment. See the recap here. He has a link. This did not go over well with James MacDonald. Upon my arrival at the church the next day, he and I sat down along with my assistant and several members of his staff, and we had a candid conversation about my decision to answer questions in a public forum. Ultimately, we agreed that it was not a good idea for me to speak at the conference. MacDonald had already made arrangements for a replacement speaker. My assistant and I were escorted to a waiting car and taken back to the airport. Yeah, you don't think the ER, the Elephant Room Two, wasn't uh, was a pseudo ecumenical church council? Here's the deal: you challenge publicly the decisions of the Elephant Room Two. You are not welcome to teach in any of the churches associated with Harvest Bible Chapel. At least the ones that side with James McDonald. I wonder if Vadi Bakum will be blacklisted from Acts Twenty Nine churches. I think it's a fair question to ask, don't you? Vadi com continues, he says, looking back, uh, looking back on the incident, I realized that I put myself in an untenable position. As I see it, I had three choices once ER2 went down the way it did. I could remain silent indefinitely, which would have given tacit approval of Jake's, etc. I could have held my comments until after the men's conference, which would have been deceptive to James McDonald and Harvest Bible Chapel and those who showed up to hear me, or... I could answer the questions honestly ahead of time, leaving no doubts as to, uh, to both my decision to honor my commitment to the men's conference and my disapproval of ER2. Obviously, I chose the latter. 
In hindsight, I should have canceled the event when I declined the ER2 invitation. But remember, there were many moving parts at that time. They were private internal discussions within the Gospel Coalition. They, There were public pressure from all corners of the evangelical community. There were private conversations. I've already alluded to my own discussion and that of Mark Dever. And But there were uh, others. There was also a possibility that Jakes had truly repented. And these guys, specifically McDonald, Driscoll, and Jack Graham, <clears throat> were privy to things the rest of us simply didn't or couldn't know at the time. As I look ahead, I think two things are very important. First, I believe T.D. Jakes is wrong on the doctrine of the Trinity and wrong on the gospel. I'm also involved directly in a matter, the ER2 controversy, that has brought discussion of those facts to light. Consequently, my mandate to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it obligates me to be on record in the matter. I have done that. Second, the racial overtones of this matter have gotten out of hand. See here, he gives an example. I think that goes to the Loritz piece. Yes, it does. And must be addressed. The ER2 controversy is now pitting black evangelicals against white evangelicals and against each other with T.D. Jakes as the centerpiece. This is an opportunity to pull back the curtain on the awkward racial dynamic in the evangelical circles. Race is a convenient dodge for those with weak arguments and an inconvenient truth for those who harbor prejudice. But that is an absolutely confusing subject for myriad of evangelicals who simply love Christ and love his church and want desperately not to offend their brothers and sisters in the Lord by using black when they should have used African-American or vice versa. The irony is that the issue is most pronounced when heterodoxy is in play. For example, when a white evangelical disagrees with a solid reformed black pastor on technical theological issue, there's rarely a charge rarely a charge of racism. However, let the black brother be part of a heterodox or heretical group, i.e. oneness Pentecostal, word faith, black liberation theology, etc., and suddenly the white brother who makes the argument against him faces the charge of racism. Why? Partly because of racism. You see, Yet, you see, some of this boils down to what sometimes has been called the soft bigotry of lowered expectations, asking black people to adapt orthodox theology when Lord knows they don't have access to the same schools, books, opportunities, and in the mind of some lack sufficient intelligence, is asking them to negate their blackness, while on the other hand, the solid, reformed, well-educated black pastor is not really black. Therefore, he's fair game. Irony of ironies, that is racist, and that's what has been dragged out of the shadows. I'm not angry with James McDonald. He's my brother, and I love him. We disagree. We both understand that. Ironically, that's what the elephant room is supposedly all about. Brothers should be able to disagree with one another and still be brothers. There's just one problem. Embracing Jake's while rejecting others because we question the, his history of modalism and word of faith teaching, that's the real elephant in the room. Got a got a man that was just succinct, brilliant, and bold. Thank you, Pastor Vadi, for your clear boldness in taking a clear, reasoned stand for the truth and what's been happening in the ER two fallout in the general church. And again, what happened to you really exposes the fact that I I think that there's going to be serious ramifications within the body of Christ, Harvest Bible Chapel Fellowship, as well as potentially the Acts 29 churches, um, if you uh, 
say a word negatively against T.D. Jakes and continue to question whether or not he's truly a Trinitarian and a Christian brother. Of course, the um, word of faith heresy never did get brought up, did it? All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to do a standard Fighting for the Faith sermon review. I can't believe we're going to do this. When was the last time we had a normal edition of Fighting for the Faith? Anyway, if you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Our first normal sermon review in a while. You know, we had to do the Heresy Olympics. That was the biggest heretical event around. And then the whole elephant room thing happened. Can I get back into the saddle here appropriately? Well, we're going to find out. Here we go. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Our sermon today comes to us via C3 Church, Orlando, Florida. Uh, Brian Bledsoe presiding. The name of the sermon is Live in the Moment. Now, just so you know, this is a sermon supposedly about financial management. And that, I think, is kind of the problem. Because at its core, the Bible is not really a book of principles regarding financial management. And um, I haven't listened to the whole thing, but got to tell you, when I was previewing the sermon, 
Um, he wasn't all that quick to get into the Bible, so um, yeah, that's kind of an issue. But here, let me uh, let me kill the music. So without any further ado, here's Brian Bledsoe and his um, sermon entitled "Live in the Moment." Here we go. I do hope you will uh, fill out the information on that response card and at the end of the service, just drop that in the offering bag. We've kind of launched the new year talking about how to ruin your life. And that's the series we've been in and we're wrapping that up this morning, how to ruin your life. We've talked about how to do this. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the name of the sermon series is how to ruin your life. Sign me up. Yeah. The, the, okay. I do that personally. In your personal life, the way that you guarantee you'll ruin your life is to just, just, just don't have a dream. Don't take the time to discover why God put you on planet. Oh, man. Yeah, there you go. So if you want to ruin, number, step number one for ruining your life, don't have a dream. <sighs> oh, man. Planet Earth, because your life has a very unique and very specific purpose. And Jesus said, I came to give you life and give it to the full. <clears throat> yeah. So if, if you... That's John 10.10 10, out of context. Yeah, that, see, that's a problem. I mean, oh, man. See, here we are. I mean, he, he kind of makes an allusion to John 10.10. 10. And, you know, so many people think that somehow this is some kind of a cardinal doctrine, you know, of Christianity. Uh, this is kind of like the, uh, for lack of a better way of putting, gr the ground zero Bible verse for purpose-driven uh Theology. The problem is, is that John ten ten isn't really teaching what you think it's teaching. Okay, and the reason I say that is, is because, well, the three primary rules for sound biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. And so, if you were to look at John ten ten, the second sentence in the verse says, "I came that they may have life and have it abundantly," but that's without any context whatsoever. It makes and by the way, just because Jesus said, "I came that they may have life and have it abundantly," that text is not saying. Therefore, that means that God has a specific dream for your life. It's not saying anything of the sort. And so, I'm just quoting John ten ten, sentence two. So it's even a half verse. It's not even a full verse. It's just like a half verse. So if we were to apply our 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 rules of biblical interpretation, context, context, context. By the way, what I've noticed um, in doing you know this program for almost four years now is uh, is that literally like eighty five to ninety percent of all bad teaching in the church gets cleared up immediately. Um, I mean, it's like, it, it, you know, you, you think about, you know, if you have a rash, you put some cortisone on it and it cleans it right up. Yeah, it's it's like that. It's, you know, it's, you know when bad teaching it, in some cases can be like, uh, like poison ivy or something like that. You just apply a little bit of context to it and it clears right up. And so, yeah, the context, the context, 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 the uh, the the ointment that treats uh, you know, bad teaching. Uh, so the idea, how do we figure out what's going on in John ten ten sentence two? Remember, that's half a verse. Answer: You add some verses before, you add some verses after to figure out what it is that Jesus was teaching there. Okay. So, in fact, if you have your Bible. 
Um, this the 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 immediate context of John ten ten begins in chapter nine, and if you're going to be doing any, if you're going to really be studying the scriptures, you want to be careful. And what I mean by that is this: is that don't be fooled into believing that just because there's chapter headings in the biblical text, that each chapter heading it, it represents kind of these self-contained thoughts. Um, no, the, ch- the chapter headings and the verse numbers are just an apparatus that was put into the Bible text centuries later to help people locate particular parts of the biblical text. So when you're reading the Bible, you, you, you need to train yourself to not look at the verse numbers and chapter headings. I, and I mean that. I, I really do. Um, so that you are able to really get the, the, the gist of what it is that each of these biblical authors was trying to convey. They're, they're writing a story for you and, um, and telling you important information. And so the chapter headings and verse numbers are not in the biblical text. That being the case, um, what happened is, is that in chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who was blind from birth. And, um, and what ended up happening is, is that poor guy, was drugged before the religious leaders there and uh and literally uh, you know was questioned about who who healed you and all this kind of stuff and and they the the religious leaders ended up despising him i mean literally if we start at john chapter 9 verse 28 we're catching the tail end of the story and it's this beautiful story how jesus heals a blind man heals a blind man and um and and then this guy gets persecuted for being healed by of all people religious people i mean so anyway verse 28 so the religious leaders they reviled him saying you are jesus's disciple but we are disciples of moses we know that god spoke to moses but as for this man we don't know where he comes from so the man answered well why this is an amazing thing you don't know where he comes from yet he opened my eyes and we know that god does not listen to sinners but if anyone is a worshiper of God or does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And then they cast him out. <laughs> so apparently the religious leaders thought that they were better than him. Apparently not as sinful as he was because he he was born blind. Apparently something he did to deserve that, right? So Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, and I mean that. Um, when I've taught from this passage uh, in the past, you know, when I would teach in church, um, this, th- just, this text wrecks me because it, there's a beautiful play on words here. you got to remember, the guy was born blind, Jesus healed him, but he had never seen Jesus. Even though he had been healed by Jesus, he had never actually physically healed, uh, seen Jesus. And so Jesus comes to him after he had been cast out of this, uh, this church meeting, and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. So Jesus immediately says, you're looking at him, okay? Which is a big deal because Jesus had just given him his eyesight back. So he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped Jesus. Oh, this is great stuff. Anyway, so Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not, who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. So some of the Pharisees heard him 
say these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have not you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly I say to you, that he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus here is talking about false teachers, okay, talking about you know people who are trying to steal sheep, okay, and comparing himself, the good shepherd, to the false teachers, right? That's the context of what's going on, verse 7. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. But the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and they will listen to my voice. And that for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my father. Now you'll notice what's going on there. So when Jesus is talking about that they may have life and have it abundantly, he's talking here in an analogy that he's made between uh, those who are his followers and sheep of a good shepherd. Okay, And the whole point of the passage has nothing to do with you discovering your unique purpose that God has given you. The whole point of the passage is Jesus, the good shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep. Right? So always be very wary of any pastor who quotes John 10.10 10 without any context. Why do I say that? The reason I say that is because many times it's often used as a proof text for purpose-drivenism and used to basically teach doctrines that the passage itself are not teaching. And the way Brian Bledsoe is using this passage here, he's trying to make it appear as if John 10.10 10, sentence 2 without any context is basically saying that God has a unique dream for your life. But that's not what this text says at all. How do I know? Well, we just read it in context. This passage is actually about Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Let's continue. You don't discover your dream and why you're here. You're, you're going to miss that. You're going to miss the life God created you to live. Then we talked about how to ruin your life in relationships. It's very, very simple. Just put yourself first. I mean, think of other people, but only think of them after you think of you. Put yourself first. You're going to ruin your relationships. 
Then last week we talked about how to ruin your life when it comes to your health. The way you do that is just wait. You have all the information, you know the facts, you know you should eat right, you know you should exercise. You know the Bible teaches that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where God lives on planet earth inside those of us that are Christ followers. And and so we're to take care of our bodies. But the way you ruin your health is just wait. Because tomorrow is always a better day to run than today. It is. Tomorrow is always better. And so you just delay, you just wait, you procrastinate, and you will wake up having ruined your health one day. This morning, I want to talk to you about something very specific. I want to talk to you about how to ruin your life financially. Because if you were to ask me, hey, as a pastor, what what is the primary thing that you see causing more stress, creating more pressure, wrecking more relationships, damaging more marriages, messing up more kids? What is the one thing that begins to happen where there is then this, this trickle effect that moves into other areas of life? And because we're so stressed out and so much under pressure, it affects how we feel. It affects how we treat other people. It can even affect how we view God. It's our finances. Okay, I want to point something out here. Okay. Are there a lot of people out there who make really awful, terrible, self-centered financial decisions? Yep. Okay. Now, if I were to tell somebody who uh, who makes terrible, bad financial decisions, listen, the secret to making bad fin- you know, to overcoming bad financial decisions is to make good financial decisions. Am I getting at the root of the problem or am I just dealing with the well, consequences of the problem? Because here's the deal. We live in a world where, yeah, there's all kinds of financial strife. Why is that? Why is it that you and I would make bad financial decisions? Answer, because we are by nature sinners. Yeah, when you look at the biblical text, all of these things that we see going wrong in our lives, okay, are the result of our sinful rebellion against God. And by the way, our sinful rebellion against God is not solved by merely deciding to apply particular principles to make sure that we that we live lives that honor God in our finances or in other things, okay? Because here's the deal. Um you've got if you're going to talk about this problem, bad financial decisions, you've got to tie it back to our sinful nature and our sin. And the only solution for that is not trying to obey better because God doesn't grade on a curve. If you've made bad financial decisions or suffered the the results of bad financial decisions as a result of selfishness and other things and mismanagement, well ultimately you've sinned against God. And the solution to your sin is not just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and saying, I'm going to try harder. The solution to your sin is a crucified and risen Savior, a bloodied and beaten Jesus on the cross. And you need to repent and be forgiven and then bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Let's see if Brian Bledsoe ties our bad financial decisions to our sinful nature and our sin problem and placards Jesus Christ as the solution, or if he just glosses over it and gives us a topical solution that we can get anywhere. I mean, I mean, Dr. Phil on his program from time to time has financial people come in. I mean, we, what's that? Is it Stacey Orman? I, I forget the name of that. But you know, you know what I'm talking about. There's people on cable news who give great financial advice. Um, but just applying financial principles to your life do not, doesn't make you pleasing to God and doesn't address the root problem, your sin. Let's continue. It's probably the one thing you think about more than anything else in life, unless you're a guy, that's probably sex. But other than that, 
how we deal and I don't know where that came from. How we deal with and navigate because I'm a guy. How we deal with and navigate our finances just impacts so many areas of life. And honestly, as I was looking at this this week and thinking through and praying for you and praying for C3 and our future and thinking about different people and different needs that I know and just I really just became overwhelmed with gratitude for you. I honestly want to thank you because some of you, many of you, you you get it. When I think about the very short existence, how how young C3 Church is, and I think about our size, and I think about what God has happened and how God has, has used us together to do some things in our very short life. We've built clean water drinking wells in Africa through Blood Water Mission. You've given 600 families enough food for an entire month. You together have given 600 backpacks packed with school supplies to kids in need. During our Crazy Love Initiative, every week for 15 weeks, together we gave $500 to families and to charitable causes. Preaching about himself right now, this is not a biblical teaching yet. Each week, $500 a week. You've cleaned up and landscaped a school. You've sent teams of volunteers to to post offices to help with a stamp out hunger event. We've sent volunteers to habitat warehouses to help stock supplies. When tragedy struck in Haiti, we made a way through our website that you could donate to that and you gave. And just in December, just last month, even in a very difficult and sluggish economy, with so many of you having to navigate things financially very differently than you did just five years ago. You still gave over $5,000 to help students go to summer camp this summer to make it more possible for them to go financially. It's been incredible what God has done in our short existence. Just a reminder, sermon time is supposed to be Bible teaching time. We got a problem here. Together, you have been so generous. And those things, different things that we hear about where you step up to the plate, that could be called intervention giving. We involve ourselves in in intervention giving. Intervention giving is where we, we see a crisis or a need and we give something immediately to meet that need. And you've done that over and over and over again. And many of you have done that because when it comes to how to ruin your life financially, you get it. You're not going to ruin your life. It's very simple. The way you ruin your life financially, it's not hard. All you do to ruin your life financially is only live in the moment. Which, by the way, I would argue is a result of your sinful nature and your rebellion against God. Only live in the moment. Don't think about how much you owe on the credit cards. Don't think about how little you're putting in retirement. Don't think about all the different areas that are difficult, all the things. Okay, this begs a question. Does somebody with a larger 401k, is that person more pleasing to God than somebody with a smaller 401k? It's a fair question. You've got to navigate. Don't worry about college tuition for the kids. Don't, don't think about tomorrow. Just live in the moment. Who cares if you can pay the bill later? It feels good to buy it right now. Who cares that your income compared to what you're spending is all out of whack? It doesn't matter. Today, I want to feel good. The way you ruin your life financially is only live in the moment. Many of you get that. And so when an opportunity comes up where we can make a difference, 
you're able to step up because you're not. Yeah, I see. Yeah. So, so maybe the rule is, so if an opportunity comes up where you can make a difference in the world and well, you've made bad financial decisions and you can't make a difference with your money, does that mean that you're sinning? I mean, okay. Can you draw a connection here and show we, show me from the biblical text that this is a sin? Where does it say we need to be able to make a difference with our money? You understand what I'm saying here? Listen, I mean, listen to the tacit expectation here. Not living in the moment. You, you've planned ahead. And it's astounding what God has been able to do through intervention giving. America is a nation. It is good at intervention giving. Part of it is because of our, a large part, because of our Judeo-Christian values that says, say that other people matter. And so we tend to be overall a compassionate people. Yes, we can be, and we are intensely selfish. But at the same time, when there is a crisis and there is a need, we want to step up. There is something in us that draws us to do something. And we tend to be somewhat compassionate. This is a subjective argument. And so we can be involved in intervention giving, giving directly to something that will help immediately. And it's awesome. And C3 has been involved in that. And we will continue to be involved in intervention giving from time to time. We're kind of built to think in terms of intervention. When people get married, the honeymoon may last a year, a month, for some of you a day. But when people get married, at first the marriage, man, it is awesome to be married. And then things begin to slide a little bit and you begin to not do some things you did before and how you treat each other begins to change. And if you're not careful, the relationship can begin to decline. The marriage can begin to change and bad habits and bad patterns come into place and the relationship gets worse until it reaches a crisis point where we need intervention. And when you need intervention in a marriage, typically you go to a therapist and you sit down and you tell somebody, you, you talk about the problem. Another fair question. Would somebody who is doing a decent job of managing their finances need this sermon? We continue. Problems and your spouse, they talk about the problems and then you, you tell the truth and you clear it all up. I mean, you, you say what's really happening. And, and the marriage therapist in their mind, I guarantee you, what the, they're, they're not going to say this to you, but I, I'm, I'm going to give you a little hint. I'm not a counselor. I, I don't do marriage therapy. I, I just try to live each day. I, I, I'm not good at that because when I hear stuff, I just think you're, you're stupid. Here's what you need to change. I don't need to hear anything else. But what a marriage therapist is thinking, here's what they're thinking. Didn't you see this coming? I mean, you acting like this and you talking like that and you doing this. Didn't, couldn't you see this crisis point coming? But we don't worry about it until it is a crisis. Then we want the intervention. We want a therapist or somebody to tell us the three things that our spouse should do so that it'll all be okay because we got this crisis and now we need it fixed. We need an intervention. We do the same thing with our health. We don't eat right. We don't exercise. We just roll through life and all the while our health is deteriorating. As we get older, the neglect of the past catches up. And very few people bother to change anything. We, we don't want to do that. We just want to, when it gets bad enough, when the report's bad enough, when the test comes back and I got a problem, give me a pill or give me the surgery. And doctor, if you can't give me the pill, I'll find another doctor who can. I don't want to have to change anything. I just want some kind of easy intervention where all of a sudden things are made okay. Last week we talked about how to ruin your life when it comes to your health and some people, you sat in this room as we were kind of rolling through that, and we had Troy and Jacqueline talking about exercise and nutrition, and we talked about our bodies and the temple of the Spirit, and a lot of people, man, boy, you're thinking, I know it, it's true. It's true, this is going to be, I need to do this. What they're saying is so true. It's been seven days. How you doing? 
Some of you, man, you're, you're on it. You got it. You buried it. But, but others of you, it's just like, you went, oh, is that what we talked about last week? I don't, I don't, yeah. Hey, good news. New day, brand new week. You can start. It's all right. But we're built for intervention. We don't really want to have to do much until we have to. If you were to ask me how we've done it, Together as a church, how has C3 been able to step up and invest and help the... Mm. Boy, uh, when, is, when do you think he's going to get to the biblical text here? He's talking about himself again. ...the community and make a difference. We've been able to do that because a lot of people understand in this room that the way you ruin your life financially is to only live in the moment. So they don't do that. And that's a symptom of a deeper problem, your sinful nature... There's a financial strategy to how they live because while intervention giving is good and often necessary, there is a far superior kind of giving. It's not intervention giving, it's prevention giving. Prevention giving is giving to something that's bad. Giving giving so something that's bad will never happen. We exist as a church not because of the moments of the flash and the lights and the big results. We're able to week after week change lives and see Jesus change lives. Mm. By the way, that's not what the... I hate to say this, but uh, that's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is not to, quote, change lives. Now, I, I know that this might come as a shock to some of you, but that's not what Jesus commissioned the church to do. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at the Great Commission, and we're also going to look at Luke 24. I want to point this out. Okay, starting at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did you hear anything in here in the Great Commission about go and change lives? No. Nothing. Yeah, see, here, <clears throat> here's the deal. I've got to point this out. Throughout the millennia, Men and women who have been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins have suffered persecution and in many senses have experienced life change. And what I mean by that is that they have gone from breathing and walking upright to being dead and in a grave as a result of their confession of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, changing lives does occur through the preaching of the gospel. But the thing is, is that this preaching assumes that what it's supposed to do is make your life better. But nowhere, nowhere is it promised that Christianity will make your life better or improve it. In fact, Jesus himself promised persecution, promised suffering. And if you look at the lives of the apostles of Jesus Christ, these would be his disciples who he then sent out to make disciples of the nations. All but one of them died martyrs' deaths. All but one died martyrs' deaths. And see, the church history tells us they tried to martyr the Apostle John, but somehow he survived that ordeal. 
Yeah, I think they tried to boil him in oil. I'm doing this from memory, but I think that's what uh, Eusebius writes about uh, the Apostle John. But he somehow survived that ordeal. I'm sure that was fun. But um, so the I mean, seriously, Peter was crucified upside down. It took him several days to die. Uh, Paul beheaded. I mean, you got you got other disciples who were put into you know animal skins and fed to lions. I mean, it was just gory and a horrible death. So they experienced life change. Now, I would throw it also into this a cross reference, Luke chapter twenty four. I'll start at verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I have spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in, in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, or the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Okay, now... So the church is beholden to the Great Commission in both Matthew 28 as well as Luke 24. Luke 24 gives us a lot, uh, really kind of puts some uh, meat around the message that the uh, the Christian church is to proclaim. We're to make disciples and baptize and teach all things that Jesus commanded, and we are to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And by the way, proclaiming life change with an assumption that that means an improvement of your life, I'm sorry, that is not synonymous with the the message that Jesus has given the church to preach, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Um, at this point, I'm pretty convinced that uh, Brian Bledsoe is way off topic, but we continue. Because of those who consistently give a percentage of their income to the church that they believe in so that we can do this. So materials can be purchased and equipment can be serviced. So staff can be paid. So we can create a children's ministry that captures the imagination of kids where they learn to grow up loving Jesus and loving the church because Jesus loved the church. And to love Jesus is to love the church. You can't love the king but not his kingdom. You can't love the father but not his kids. To love the one means you have to love the other if you truly love the first. So to love Jesus is to love the church because Jesus loved the church. And the Bible says he gave his life for the church. It's the church he's coming back for. And Jesus said, it is the church. Okay, by the way, it has been a long time since I've been able to do this, but hang on. Yeah, folks, that was an official gospel nugget. Yeah, that flew in and flew out so quickly. Jesus gave his life for the church. There was the gospel. Just as, man, if you would have blinked, you would have missed it. But it, we don't get to do that as often as we've done in the past. Wow. Not a donkey or an elephant that is the hope of the world. It's the church that is supposed to be the change agent and the one making a difference in our culture and in our society. And many of you... Yeah, no, no, this is like Richard Niebuhr's uh, theology just gone to seed. Uh, again, the commission of the church has nothing to do with going and making a difference in the world and being a change agent. Or to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins and make disciples. Does that have an impact on the on the greater culture? You bet your bippy it does. But you focus on the task, and that's the thing that that's that's the caboose that comes along. Yeah. You get that. The reason we've been able to react in crisis moments generously is because of what many of you do week after week after week. You understand what creates an opportunity to intervene and to step up and to help is consistency in percentage giving. And to those of you that do that, I can't thank you enough. Unfortunately, many of us just lean toward intervention giving. 
We don't lean toward prevention giving because intervention giving is emotional and it's measurable. But prevention giving is far... Can you show me in the Bible where the Bible makes the distinction between intervention giving and this other thing that you're talking about? Are these doctrinal categories? I'm not familiar with these categories from any systematic theology or doctrine textbook like at all. Are you going to get to the biblical text, Brian? Superior. If I say, hey, we... We need to feed a hundred families. It's, it's measurable and we get excited and you're going to see those families' faces when you drop off the food. And so we dive in, we're, we're intervening or, hey, we're going to purchase 500 backpacks for kids that won't start the year with a backpack or school supplies if we don't make a difference. That is. Yeah. Um, by the way, just because you give a kid a backpack um, doesn't mean they've been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, Jesus didn't say go and give backpacks away. He said, yeah, you got what I'm saying. Measurable and it's emotional. So we dive in because we can see the results. Prevention giving is not emotional. And it's not measurable. Now remember, Jesus said, teaching them all that I've commanded you. That's basically a reference to teaching the entire counsel of the word of God, all of scripture. Um, what have we got so far? One half a verse, you know, the abundant life, the, um, out of context thing here. Boy, he's, I mean, it's like he's running out of time here. He's got a job to do. He ain't getting to it. Uh, which biblical ta- passage are you preaching again from, Brian? Think about it. Would you rather give to an organization that prevents child abuse or would you rather give to an organization that rescues kids that are in abusive, abusive situations? Do I, I mean, seriously, this is supposed to be a church service. Can we talk about that like at the UNICEF meeting and instead, you know, can you open up the Bible and start, you know, preaching from a biblical text? And maybe, you know, like pick like the book of Philippians or maybe Romans, you know, and start at chapter one, verse one, and, you know, and, and read and exegete and tell us what God said there. The answer is both. You want to give to an organization that rescues kids that are in abusive situations because you don't want them to have to be there. But the moment you rescue that child, if you look into that child's face and you look into their eyes, the first thing you're going to think is this should have never happened. Yet the reason why kids need rescuing in this world is because of our sin. Can we please talk about the real problem? So yes, we want to be involved in giving to organizations that rescue kids from abusive situations, but we also want to give to organizations that prevent it from ever happening. Yeah, good luck on that. Uh, Because as soon as you can get kids to be not born dead in trespasses and sins, we won't have to suffer from the consequences of our sin. Here's the deal. When you give to a church that is passionate about connecting the community with Christ. How do you do that again? With backpacks, right? That is passionate about following the teachings of Jesus that cares about and loves the community and desires to reach people far from God. It is preventative giving. Consistent giving to a great church. This, This just feels like a really bad sales pitch. Church that is making a difference in lives, that's working hard to reach people and help people. That is preventative giving. Yeah, I've seen this. I've seen the infomercial at two in the morning when I have insomnia. I mean, you can save the children. It's not emotional. It's very difficult to measure. A hundred families, or five hundred kids, 
or clean water drinking wells. You can measure that. But here's, here's what you can't measure. You can't measure how many kids will sleep well tonight because mom and dad, even though they're navigating difficult things, have purpose to love Jesus and love each other and create as much peace and harmony in the home and put Jesus first even in their relationships so they stay together when others just don't navigate it that way. You can't measure how many kids will get a great night's sleep because mom and dad are plugged into a local church that encourages them to continue to do that. You can't measure how many teenage girls and guys won't have sex outside of marriage because their lives have been impacted by our student ministry because there are some adults that volunteer and spend time with them in small groups. I just need to say this. There will be plenty of people who were virgins on the day they got married that will still go to hell because that's not what determines whether or not you're in with God. It's whether or not you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Yeah, Listen. I'm not, not I'm not against the fruit of repentance being displayed in the lives of Christians not at all. But notice here this is a sermon about them because they're preaching their obedience. They're changing the world but they're and and Jesus gets an honorable mention. He gets credit for it, but we're not hearing the gospel. So yeah, we got people who are loving neighbor and stuff like that, but the problem is is that loving God and loving neighbor is the law. It's not the gospel. It's the thing that condemns you, and it's the very reason why you don't manage your money right because you are dead in trespasses and sins and you don't love God with all your heart. It shows up in every facet of your life. You need a better solution than just, you know, apply yourself to these principles of of, you know, saving and and giving. And then voila, you're 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 okay with God. <laughs> Not at all. We need a crucified and risen Savior here. And pour their lives into them and say, Don't settle for that and don't make your don't make decisions that that can be very difficult and last with you for years. Don't don't do that. Live this way. You can't measure that. You can't measure how many men no longer go to that website because of an addiction that they've had and they feel the need to feed it because they're now growing in their faith and they've learned how to navigate temptation because the local church is very transparent and talks about what the scriptures teach. You can't measure that. You can't measure this morning how many kids in Powerhouse or Playland or First Look right now are going to grow up and live healthy lives spiritually and mentally and emotionally and physically and make a difference in the world because they grew up in a church that... There we go again. Make a difference in the world. That's not what we're called to do. That's actually a competing mission, a different mission than the mission that Christ gave the church in Matthew 28. And what does it mean to make a difference in the world? Hitler made a difference. It's not a good one that taught them to love Jesus and love the church and to apply the truth of Scripture. We can't measure the number of dads that will never have affairs, the number of kids that will never be abused, the number of divorces that won't happen, and the number of families that will live, won't live in a hostile environment. Now, I've I got to point something out here. I'm, I'm going to back this up, and I'm going to play this list again. And I'm going to assume that since C3 in uh, Orlando is a mega church, that... Um, there are people sitting in the room hearing this, and they're literally hearing their sin broadcast by him without <laughs> – yeah, they're going to sit there. You know, seriously, we have them all stand up. Everyone stand up, okay? And as soon as the sin's mentioned that you've done, sit down, 
Okay, yeah, watch this. Well, let me back this up just a little bit. Listen. We can't measure the number of dads that will never have affairs, the number of kids that will never be abused, the number of divorces that won't happen, and the number of families that will live, won't live in a hostile environment. We cannot measure that. Yeah, you catch that list? How much you want to bet there's a whole group of people there in the church that just heard their sin called out by name, and they just went, <laughs> whoops, uh-huh. You got anything for them? Or are you just going to basically teach them to act like they haven't done it? Huh? But I can tell you this. A great church that's making a difference in lives, like C3, we prevent divorce and alcoholism and drug abuse and child abuse every single week. I can't tell you how many of our teenagers won't wrap their car around a tree because they were drinking and driving because they're plugged into our student ministry that cares. You, you can't measure the results of that. What happens Sunday after Sunday in the life of a local church that gets it is preventative, but you can't measure it. And there's not a lot of flash, and it's not very emotional. Boy, yeah, wow. Okay, that's great and all, but again, um, what are you going to do with all the people in your church that, well, despite your preventative measures still committed all those sins. Oh, and by the way, did I fail to mention the fact that, yeah, there might be a lot of guys at C3 Church who haven't physically committed the deed with adultery, but they're still guilty as sin before a holy and just God because they thought it in their hearts. So can they really say they haven't committed adultery? Again, this guy is glossing over things and exalting their self-righteousness and doing so in a way that seems silly because I'm telling you, there's people there in the audience who just heard their sin called out and they realize, well, I've already done that. So much for the prevention, right? The power of the local church is not through the intervention. The greatest power of the local church is through what we together prevent no the power of the local church is the preaching of the gospel yeah yeah hang on a second here i i just want to uh, read something from the apostle paul yeah we'll find this in romans chapter 1 verse 16 for i am not ashamed of the gospel for it the gospel is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Yeah, so the power of the church is not the power to change lives or make a difference. The power of the church is the proclamation of the gospel. If you don't know what the gospel is, you can find it summarized rather succinctly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul actually brought, wrote down the gospel, the good news that he proclaims. First uh, Corinthians 15.1, now I would pr- uh, remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some are asleep. And then he appeared to James and to the other apostles, and last of all, to one as untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
So the gospel, the good news, is the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification. That's the, that's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's the power in the church is the gospel. But unfortunately, Brian Bledsoe here is um, kind of missing the whole point. Makes me wonder if he knows what the gospel is. Here, let me back this up, play it again. Here we go. And there's not a lot of flash, and it's not very emotional. The power of the local church is not through the intervention. The greatest power of the local church is through what we together prevent. No, it's through the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God, not the things you prevent. Those of you who are percentage givers, you help, you help pay the expenses and buy the equipment and pay the staff and one day add campuses and maybe add other theaters or one day maybe have buildings. All of that because of your financial, faithful, consistent giving. Here's the truth. You will never know the full impact of your giving because of all that you've prevented, the stories will never be told. You've kept a whole lot of really bad stories from ever having to be told. Yeah, the problem is is that every one of us has a bad story when you look at what the bad news really is. Yeah, sorry, I keep interrupting here, but listen. The good, the gospel, the good news of, the, of of Christianity is not that we prevent bad things from happening on the earth. The good news is actually foiled against the bad news, and the bad news is that we're all born dead in trespasses and sins. All of us already have a bad story, and in case you haven't looked lately, we're all going to die. So, I mean, every single one of us is either going to come to an end in blood through an accident or some act of violence, or we're going to languish and die as a result of a disease, and it's all going to be sad and terrible and awful and bad. Good night. You know, do you got anything that can prevent that? You have literally changed the reality for men and women and young people and families. It's not very emotional because you'll never hear the stories but it may be the truest thing you've ever heard. That's the power of preventative giving. And you cannot do that if you only live in the moment. Yeah, by the way, uh, it doesn't matter if you engage in preventative giving or giving in the moment. It doesn't matter. No matter how much money you throw at it, you can't solve or prevent the thing that's going to happen to all of us. Death and standing before the judgment throne of God. Ugh. You have to look beyond to the future, the future that can be created. And you have to look deeper than your feelings to the truth of Scripture and what the God who created you expects of you. And you may be a guest this morning. You may be here and thinking, man, I came and they're going to talk about money. You need to know in the life of C3, we talk about real life stuff and we do that every single week and we navigate money. And here's the deal. If God has stuff to say about money and money is messing up so many people's lives, maybe we need to step back and look at what God says and begin to navigate it this way so that lives don't get messed up. Do you just live in the moment? Or do you follow what the scriptures teach? I think part of the reason we struggle and part of the reason we have such a difficult time navigating life, 
Our problem, the biggest problem that we deal with as followers of Jesus is not the stuff in the Bible that we don't understand. Our biggest struggle is the stuff that we know God said but we don't want to do. And we call ourselves followers of Jesus and somehow reconcile in our minds that that doesn't mean we have to follow his teachings. Our economy is will. Can I just point out the obvious here? Okay, let's just assume you're right for a second. Sure, you, the, the people at the church need to follow the teachings of Jesus. Right on. Why aren't you preaching them? Hmm? Are they supposed to just pick them out of the air, learn them via osmosis, cram for the test at home? How are they supposed to learn this? Your job, pastor, is to preach that word of Jesus so that they can know what it is. But you're not doing that. We we are literally 19 minutes into the sermon, 19, and we've only gotten one, one, one half verse out of context so far in this sermon. I mean, if it's so important that people follow the teachings of Jesus, don't you think it would make sense that you spend an inordinate amount of time actually teaching what Jesus taught? Bills off. Our nation is in shambles. And nobody really has a plan other than God about how to rectify the whole mess. When we do money and life the way Jesus said, why do you think he said it? Because he's also the guy that said, I came to give you life to the full. He wants us to have it. Listen, this is not about what God can get from you. It's about what God wants for you. Again, he's not even doing a biblical sermon here. And he's just reiterate. He's just, again, respoken the same half verse that he gave before, which isn't about your abundant life. It's actually about Jesus. And if you miss that, you're going to ruin your life. Uh, the problem is, is that Jesus said that he came for the sick, not the well. Right. That's exactly what Jesus said, by the way. If, you know, if all, if you're not sick with sin, you don't need Jesus. Jesus is only for sinners. He came to seek and save the lost, not give advice to the people who just need to improve their lives. Ay, ay, ay. You'll be thrown into the masses with the mediocrity of people that just walk through stagnant lives and live straight. Oh, no. That's the world's big problem. Mediocrity. Yeah. It's like the cancer eating humanity out, man. Yeah, you know that mediocrity. Dressed out and are pulling their hair out. It's not how I lost mine. They're pulling their hair out, trying to figure out how to navigate this thing, always living under pressure, always stressed out. When you live in that kind of stress, it affects your marriage. It affects how you raise your kids. It affects the atmosphere that your children are growing up in because you're wigging out. What if you just stepped back, took a deep breath? What if you opened the Bible and actually taught it? And said, I'm not going to just live in the moment anymore. Jesus said some stuff. Great. Why don't you tell us what that stuff is? He must have said it for a reason. Yeah. Why don't you tell us what it is if he said it for a reason? Like, you know, go go to one of the Gospels and start reading. Words mean things. So I'm going to try to apply this stuff. H how can they apply it if they haven't heard it? So here's the challenge. I'm about to challenge you to do something that maybe you've never done. And I'm about to challenge us as a church to do something bigger than I ever have. I want to challenge you for the year 2012. I want to challenge you to become a tither. And I'm going to talk about what that means.
Still half a verse so far. But I'm challenging you. But we're uh, being told we need to be challenged to be tithers. Uh Uh-huh. Not the person sitting next to you, not the person who should be here, not the empty seat. I'm looking you right in the face, and I'm challenging you. Because just like God... In the life yeah, of- you know, it sounds to me, Brian, that uh, sorry, Byron Bledsoe, Byron, you need to. I need to issue a Bible teaching challenge to you. Um, I want to actually challenge you to, well, at least teach from three whole chapters of the Bible every Sunday. Yeah, I, I'm gonna give you a Bible teaching challenge because so far all you're doing is browbeating these people and challenging them to tithe. And telling them they need to apply the words of Jesus, but you haven't given them any of them. Leadership of C3, it's not about what we want from you. It's about what we want for you. And Jesus said some stuff that matters. So for a year. Yeah, Jesus said some stuff that matters. That's great. Why don't you tell me what some of that stuff is he said that matters? I'd like to hear some of that stuff. I'm going to ask you to begin giving 10% of your income to C3. Now, many of you already do this. Because you know what the scriptures teach. You're not just living in the moment. You don't want to ruin your life financially. You've put God first there. So I'm challenging you to step up just for 2012 and become a preventative giver. Somebody understands the value of giving to the local church and understands that the investment you make. Why on earth would I invest 10% of my money in a church that doesn't even preach God's word? Hmm? By putting God first as an act of worship, the first 10% of, of everything that comes in, you're going to put God first and you're going to bring that to him. You understand that's preventative giving. You're preventing the bad stories from ever being told. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is to go out and reach all the people with the bad stories of the forgiveness of sins, with the good story of Jesus Christ. Week after week. So how do I do that? It's really very simple. It's not as complicated as you think, but it does involve some very hard choices. You come to the place where you just say, I'm going to say yes to what the scriptures teach. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't even really have to pray about this because God's already written it down. And here's the cool thing. In all of history, God has never changed his mind about something he already wrote down. Uh, He's not teaching biblically about what what the Bible teaches about giving anyway. By the way, the tithe... If you really were to apply the tithe of the Old Testament, yeah, I think that it's upwards of like 30 to 32% of your uh, income would have to go to the church. The tithe was a tax that the children of Israel paid in order to support the temple ministry, okay? Uh, technically, there ain't no Levites anymore, okay? And for Christians, God loves a cheerful giver. We're to give what God has laid on our heart, and we give according to the gospel, not because we're browbeaten into giving. We're not get, In fact, first Corinthians, is it first or second Corinthians chapter nine basically makes it clear we don't give out of compulsion, but this is compulsion. You're not going to be the first person to guess God. So you know what? You're right. I think just just keep it all, because God understands in our heart where we put this. Yeah, the, the, God understands. He's not talking for God here without any biblical text. This is crazy. Is what we really love. And if I can't put Jesus first here, hey, listen, he's not really first here. <laughs> yeah, all I got to do is look at your life, spend five minutes with you, and I'll know that you're a sinner and that you ain't got Jesus first anywhere in your life, period. Good 
night as if that's what saves us anyway. It's not. I'm not saying you don't know him. I'm not saying he's not your savior. I'm just saying in your life, if you can't put him first here, he's not first. Mm-hmm. You got a verse that says you Go back that. and look in the scriptures when it comes to the issue of tithing. How many times that, that God... By the way, there are verses that talk about where your heart is or your treasure is there your heart is. Could you like read one of them, please? God says in the Bible, first, the first fruits. Uh, that's spoken to Israel. The first income, the first of your gain. I said Jesus. He's not even quoting the text. God is not interested in being your second place genie just for the moments when you need him in crisis because something else is first. Nor is he interested in being your first place genie. First. He's God. So how do you do this? How do you, okay, I want to do this. How do I do it? It's very simple. The the word tithe, it's literally a mathematical term. It means 10%. So here's what it means. When you get 10 of these, you give one of these. The local church. If C3 is where you attend. Again, why would I invest in a church that doesn't even preach God's word? Attend or where you're a member, you give it to C3. If this is not your church, wherever your church is that you're a part of, that you consider to be your church, when you, when you get 10 of these, you give one of these to the church. Now, that's really not that hard. I mean, you look at that, it's, it's a dollar. I mean, what, what's that going to buy? You know when it gets tough? It's when these become 100s and then it's 10. That's Starbucks. (laughs) Or when these become 1,000 and then this is 100, you can then do something with that. But it's the same thing. For every 10 of these, God says... I expect you as a follower of Jesus to put me first and as an act of worship, bring one out of every 10. Chapter and verse for New Testament Christians, please. I mean, he's just making up scripture out of his own head at this point. So here's how you do this. You give, save, and live. You decide for 2012, I'm going to give $1 out of every 10 that comes in to C3, to the local church. It's preventative giving. I'm going to be, you look at that, man, that won't do a lot, a dollar. But if I put my dollar with your dollar and your dollar and your dollar and all of our dollars together, and then we let God do that multiplying factor where he promises to bless, we get amazing results. But here's the deal. He promises when we do that, he's not only going to bless this, he's going to crazy bless this. And you'll do far more and be far healthier financially, according to God. I mean, if you think he's wrong, you take that risk, Jethro. I'm not doing it. But if you think, I I mean, you're going to go a lot further on this blessed than all of this with you managing it. How are you doing right now? So the first 10% goes to God. The second 10% I save. And the rest I live on. Let me ask you a question. How much better off would your life be if you actually did that? And when the economy just went wheels off, how much better would you have been if you had been doing that? A lot less stress when you know God is partnering with you in your finances and you have actually a savings account. You got the account, but the balance you don't tell anybody. You have a savings account? Yeah, I got one, got one. I don't use it, nothing in it, but I got it. What if you actually lived like this? 
And what's amazing is when you begin to get disciplined, because it requires discipline. When you begin to get disciplined in your life, whether it's your health or your relationships or personally discovering the dream that God has for you, the dream, the reason that you're here, when you get disciplined in your finances... This is a different religion. I don't even know what religion this is, but this is not biblical Christianity. Everything in life just begins to sort of line up, and the stress... It's a whole lot lighter. And it only costs you 10% of your money. You want a stress-free life. You want less stress and more peace and and um, abundant, miraculous uh, multiplying of your money. Well, all you got to do is give 10%. Uh-huh. Where, again, where, where, where is the Bible teaching this? And so I'm asking you for 2012 every time you get paid. Yes, I'm asking you. And all I'm asking you to do... It's what Jesus says, hey, if you're my follower, do this. Great. Show me where Jesus said that. He said Jesus said it. Where, do, where does he say it? Last week, Barry showed this chart of, of what came in on the life of C3 this past year and what would have come in if all of us were tithers, if we all together, those that are members and regular attenders of C3, brought the 10%. And the difference is astounding. It's $867,000. I don't even know what that looks like. The difference in what came in and what could have come in, $867,000. Do you realize we could have fed the entire homeless population in Orlando for an entire month? Yes, you can't change the world without all that money, that's for sure. And Do you know we could have built about 170 clean water drinking wells for 42,000 people for their entire lives? You know, we could have built 10 to 12 homes through Habitat for Humanity. If we all did this, if we all understood preventative giving, not just intervention giving, and we consistently put Jesus first in our finances as a follower of Jesus, if we all did this, that amount of money, we could have given a backpack full of school supplies for the whole year to every single... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I grew up in the church during a time when we talked about giving so that we can spread the gospel, not give out backpacks. Elementary age child in Orange County that's on restricted or free lunch. See, I, I really am convinced that what the world is waiting for is for churches to... Be churches. We say we love Jesus and we say we're going to follow him. Why in the world do we expect people to come in and fill seats and listen to this stuff if we won't even do what Jesus says? See, that's the point. When you preach the gospel, it's for all the people who don't do what Jesus said because he's offering forgiveness of sins. That's what the gospel's about. Why, when we function as selfishly by only living in the moment and using the resources... Again, I want to point out total verse count half a verse he's this is not a biblical teaching resources god has given me just to make me happy for the day where i face financial collapse later why in the world would anybody else want that disease pack your bags we're on a guilt trip here i mean this is just flat out manipulation but what could happen in the life of a church and in your life in the life of your family if we just did this, so for this is like the seeker driven social gospel. For 2012, I'm asking you and I'm challenging you for you and for the local church and for the people that that can make a difference in their lives. I'm asking you.
10%. We're going to start next Sunday. Maybe you want to go online and set up online giving. That's how we do it in my home because sometimes people come and say, man, I meant to do it, but I forgot that that hurt. I forgot to check. And so I'll bring it next time and next time never, you know what next time means. It's the same thing as when your kids ask you, can we do this? And you say, maybe. (laughs) Maybe don't mean jack. It means no, I just don't want to tell you right now. It's the same way. I forgot to check. I'll bring it next time. No, there's to be this healthy accountability in your life and mine. So we do it. You know why we do it this way in my home? It's, it's very, very simple. Jesus said, I come first. See, I'm going to get paid tomorrow. So tomorrow night or Tuesday morning, through the online giving system at our website, my, my tithe, it goes through. I don't have to wait till next Sunday. And then I get an email reminder from the church saying, hey, thank you for your contribution. And that reminds me in that moment, I don't have to wait till Sunday to pray for my church. When I get that email, God, thank you for C3 and for what you're doing in the life of C3. This, this investment I've just made, this preventative giving, God, would you just multiply that and use it to change lives? And it's very simple. You can go to www.giveC3.cc and you can set up online giving and you can set it up where it comes out every time you get paid or if you work on commission and you never know it's not a steady amount you can do it once a month you can do it one time and and manage that manually or you can set it up automatically every other week or every week or once a month whatever but it's just a way of saying Jesus you come first in my finances and here's what we're going to do you might be thinking man that sounds risky I've lost my job. I don't have any income. Hey, if you don't have any income and I'm asking you to bring 10%, I know I took math in Texas because that's where I grew up, but I think 10% of zero is zero. So this is not a guilt trip. If you don't have, there's nothing you got to feel guilty about if you don't have any income. But wouldn't it be cool if people that did have income would love Jesus enough to say, hey, you're first so that through the local church, people that didn't have an income, we could actually make a difference in their lives? I think that's what the church is supposed to be. Jesus said, love God and love others yeah there we go a little bit more of something of a verse all law have you heard the gospel yet <laughs> not at all it's as if the, god wants us to set up churches that become distributor distribute distribution centers of of uh, backpacks and things like that hmm so you can set this up online and for some of you you're thinking man it's kind of risky i understand but it God said, hey, test me, try it. So I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to ask you to do anything I'm not willing to do. But also, I'm not going to ask you to take a risk if we as the church are not willing to take a risk. This is not, this is not worth the risk. I, I'm just saying, why on earth would I invent, invest 10% of my gross income to a church where the pastor has demonstrated he can't even use sermon time to teach God's word? Hmm? where he thinks that the gospel is all about making a difference in the world rather than uh, preaching a crucified and risen Savior for the forgiveness of sins and calling sinners to repentance. Hmm? That seems like a bad use of my money. So here's what we're going to do. If you commit to this and beginning this week, man, 10% of everything you make, you're, you're giving to C3 and you get to September or you get to November and you lose your job or you're in a financial crisis and it's a train wreck, we're going to have a form online that you can fill out. And if you need it, we'll give you your money back. That's right. Giving to C3 comes with a money-back guarantee. Can somebody else say that? (laughs) So all you've got to do, I would never ask you to risk something. See, I I don't just, like, tell you this stuff because I don't believe it. Because if, like, 25 of you want your money back, I I mean, it's a risk. But, hey, because we're not going to, like, build a big savings account. We're going to change lives. But I'm telling you, if I say it, we're going to do it. 
And, and you got it right here. It'll be on the internet. You can go back to the recording. You said, I get my money back. But now listen, if you make $50,000 a year and you get, give three hundred, that's not tithing, Jethro. Your money's gone. You, you, you didn't take the risk. You didn't follow what God said. Why is God going to bless you with some half-hearted attitude? See, I'm getting better. <laughs> Why is God going to bless you? Yeah, you got to buy God's blessing. He ain't going to bless you unless you uh, give a tithe. Allah, no gospel, and no biblical text to back it up either. Weird, isn't it? And so together, you and me, all of us together, and in the life of C3, we're going to risk big, and we're actually going to believe what God says. What if we could be the church? And I believe we can be. Well, you're going to believe what God says. What did he say again? I, I don't recall you actually teaching that. What if God intends for C3 to be the church that connecting the community with Christ is not just a phrase, but, but we step up and we follow Jesus and everything he teaches because not only do I not want to ruin my life, I want to be a part of helping other people not run theirs. What if we did this stuff? How many lives could be changed and how would God use it in my life. You may hear all this and think, man, my, my finances are so upside down. I, I want to do this, but I don't know how to do it. I don't even know where to start. The guy that's my executive pastor, you hear from him every week, Barry Leathers. Before he was on our staff, he was in corporate banking, handling accounts with millions and millions of dollars. And so what he's going to do, he's got a finance major and economics major. I mean, he, he knows about money. Any money questions I have, I just say, Barry. I mean, he, he's the guy. What we're going to do on your response card, if you fill out your phone number, your email address, where it says prayer request on the back, if you just write the word finance, Barry will meet with you or meet with you and your spouse, and he'll look as closely at your financial situation as you'd like him to, and he'll help you figure out and navigate a plan of how you can begin to dig out of this. And that won't cost you a dime. That's an investment of his time that we as C3 want to make in your life and your family because it's not about what we want from you. It's about what we want for you. So all you got to do on that card, make sure we can read your phone number, your email address, and where it says prayer request, just write finances. And he'll contact you. And he'll set up a time to meet with you. We can do this. If Jesus really has changed my life, I can follow him. And we're kicking it off this week. So set up the online giving Bring your checks Sunday or however you want to do it, but we're kicking it off this week, and I'm asking you to join me for one year, 2012. Put Jesus first in your finances. You won't be able to only live in the moment. You're going to have to put God first, but his promises are huge, and I think it's going to blow our minds what he wants to do. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. And how does that make sense in the sermon at all? I don't know. Yeah, if, you, if you're a new creation, you better get your checkbook out. It's time for something new. Uh, really? You're going to read that verse and say it's time for something new, as if that verse is all about you, you can just rip it out of context in order to tell people they need to participate in the tithe challenge. But maybe you've got to trust Jesus in a way you never have. Yeah, like for the forgiveness of your sins in a way you haven't for a long time. Would you pray with me? No. Oh, man, that was horrible. Wow. Um. Yeah, and then fast forward the story to 60 years from now. Jesus doesn't return anytime soon. 60 years from now, every kid that received a backpack is 
old and gray, and the majority of them are dead and buried, and they all went to hell. Because the one contact they had with the church that was supposed to preach the gospel, they rather than getting the gospel and the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross, all they got was a lousy backpack. Uh-huh. Yeah, something to think about. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for all of your sins. That's the good news we're called to proclaim, not backpack giving. Amen. <laughs>